And do we have any more kids who want to come up here? All right, it looks like, yeah, if you want, you come on up. He raised his hand, you can come on up. Yeah, come on up. All right. Hey, you know what the quotes are going to, or you know what the quotes are for that you just brought up? We're going to give them to some people in Minneapolis who can give them out through the schools. So in the North Minneapolis public schools, kids who don't have coats, they're going to get to have these coats and hats and stuff. So isn't that cool? It's good stuff. All right? Well, I need you guys to help me with something, okay? Make sure everyone can, everyone can see the screen. Everybody see those screens up there? All right, we're all on break, right? Nobody's in school right now. So I'm going to ask you to give some answers. But unlike school, you don't have to raise your hand or wait to be called on. Just because we're on break, you just get to shout out the answer when you have it, okay? All right, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Mike back there. Hey, Mike. We had a little technical difficulty, so usually our tech person is the back. Today, he's back in the corner over there. He's going to put up a logo. Yeah, he's in the timeout. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that Mike's ever had a timeout. He's that kind of guy. Uh, we're, he's going to put up a logo of something, and I want you to shout out the name of it right when you think of it, okay? So let's try the first one. Say it, shout out louder. Nike. Nike. All right. Okay. Got it. Got it. All right. Now let's do the next one. Oh, that one. I knew that one. All right. What's the next one? Pepsi. Pepsi. How about this one? Target. Target. <laughs> McDonald's. Cub Foods. Do we have a couple more? Hey! Apple. Apple. Yeah, a little pause there. That was good, though. Church. Church. Hey! And one more. UPS. All right. Well, we have some treats for you guys. If you go see James and Krista, they have some treats. You guys, you guys can have two or three pieces, but, hey, kids, before you eat it, you have to ask mom or dad when you can have it, Okay. So you can have two or three pieces. There's plenty there for you. Well, it's fun to have the kids up here. Uh, as some of you know, and the great laughter that happened when that went up, went up there, in addition to be a part of the pastoral team here at ECC, I work part-time at UPS. Uh, and I've been, during the, the holiday season, they call it peak at UPS, because as you can imagine, between Thanksgiving and Christmas... We have a lot more deliveries to make than we do during the rest of the year. And to accommodate that, they have some of us who work in the warehouse go out and help the drivers. We, run, we ride along with the drivers and run in and out of the truck making deliveries to places. So I've been doing that during this season, and I have never looked forward to Christmas more than I do right now. Uh, than I did. Phil had a comment Phil Nelson, who leads worship, uh, he said, man, UPS has been a great job. I'm like, no, it hasn't. It's a terrible job. I... But he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about what the job is. The quality of a job is measured on the number of stories that come out of it. And then I'm like, oh, yes, it is a phenomenal job then because there are so many stories. Uh, I've got plenty of material for a long time. But <clears throat> So I'm doing this delivery thing, helping make deliveries. And they don't give me the full brown jumpsuit. I just got a brown jacket, which was okay. And a hat, too. I got the hat. Uh, 
And my original plan was to bring the jacket today, but they make you turn it in immediately. Like, don't get off the truck. They'll hold your paycheck if you don't turn it in immediately. Uh, I got to keep the hat, though. Shh. Um, <laughs> what am I going to do with the UPS hat? Uh, but so I'm making deliveries. And one of the deliveries I, I made was to a, a Catholic church and school. They have a preschool through eighth grade school connected to a Catholic church in New Brighton. And so one day I'm going in and I'm coming back out. And it's the time of day when all the parents are picking, picking up the morning kindergarten kids. Parents, you know this time of the day when every parent is at school with their smaller children as well. So there's a, about a three-year-old boy who's standing by the door. I don't know where his parent is. They're somewhere down a hallway. This kid's just standing there and by the door as I'm leaving. And he's looking at me, and I'm like, see you later, buddy. And he just eyeballs me as I walk out the door. And I get through the door and he goes, bye, UPS man. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't believe, like, three years old, I didn't say, hi, I'm the UPS man. Three years old, the kid recognized the brown jacket and knew I was the UPS man. Interesting. They, brown, they've done a great job with it. My son, the other day, is taking a bath. And uh, he's in there, and I'm doing something else. And he goes, Dad. I'm like, yeah, buddy. He goes, is soap made of livers? I'm like, what? I go in there, I'm like, what? He's like, livers. See, it says livers on it. I'm like, no, that's lever. And he's like, what's Lever? I said, well, it's the brand name. He's like, oh, what's a brand name? I'm like, oh, how do you explain brand name? Uh, And so we went off from there. But all these companies that we just showed have done an incredible job at branding. We got a bunch of kids up here, that new target. You know, they know the red circle and they know everything associated with that. Now, uh, this brand all has meaning for us. We associate, this is what advertisers do. They help us associate a brand with something, a product, a service, an experience. They associate an image with meaning. So that's what a brand is. It's an association of an image with a meaning. It is something that doesn't have meaning, uh, a swoosh symbol doesn't have meaning apart from its association with Nike. It's just a, a design thing, but they've, they've given it this significant meaning. They, and they saturate everything in our culture. Branding is everywhere. Branding is on the billboards we drive by. Branding is in the stores we go into. Branding funds all of our entertainment. Uh, branding is in our driveway. Right now, you are wearing branding. Somewhere on you, there's more than likely some sort of branding that you are wearing. It's everywhere. It permeates everything. And I'm not up here preaching against the evils of branding. Branding is what it is. But it associates some meaning, which is an interesting thing. I'm sure there have been a number of people here who have gone on a short-term mission trip. Has anyone here gone on a short-term mission trip or had someone close to them go on a short-term mission trip? Okay, great. A lot of people. One of the things that you hear often when people go on short-term mission trips is when people come back, and I've said this, 
People go to some other place in the world, whether it's the United States or outside the United States. Typically, it's an impoverished area. They go there and spend a, a, a short-term amount of time, a week, two weeks, a month, something like that. They go there, and then they come back. And the, one of the first responses you hear, almost always, and again, I've said it, is I just couldn't believe how happy they were with how little they had. Anyone heard this? Has anyone ever? Okay, so we've had a few people who have heard this. I couldn't believe how happy they were with how little they had. And this is one of the most common responses people have to mission trips. And I've, I've had that response. It, it happens a lot. So I've been there. I've, I've been in that experience. I've had that experience. This summer I was in a small group and we were having a conversation and, and missions came up as a part of it and we got into this part of the conversation. And talking about that, this idea of the people with less being happy and what that does and how we respond to that. And typically when I press people to, to kind of go through and process what they mean by that statement, I was, I was surprised at how happy they were with how little they had. And I asked them, all right, well, so what does that mean? How do you, what does that mean for you? What do you take away with that? I typically get some sort of response like this. Well, I need to be more grateful for what I have and how blessed I am. And I need to be content with less, which are all true great statements. I need to, having been in this experience where I saw how happy people were with how little they had, I need to be more grateful for what I do have and be more content with what I have, do have, want less. So that's typically how this process works, in my mind, my experience. This summer, as we were discussing it, I had this realization in the midst of the small group conversation that I reala- um, that the association between happiness and stuff came so naturally and was the first reaction to encountering people who didn't have very much stuff. What I consciously know is that the amount of stuff that I have shouldn't be related to my happiness. I consciously know that. But I have a hard time believing that because of the branding that happens all around me. I know in my head I know consciously, I can tell you, I should not, my happiness should not be dependent on the amount or, or what I have. I know that, I can say that. But the reality of my life, the way I feel about the circumstances that I am and the stuff around me and that I see is that those things will make me more happy. And that's what branding does, right? The branding it convinces us that we'll be more happy if we have this thing or this experience. That's what they're setting out. That's what the advertising is setting out to do. And these mission experiences fly in the face of that because they give us an experience where people are happy without the stuff. And growing up, all of us growing up in a culture of abundance with a ton of stuff, and being told in every experience that we have through every advertisement around us, whether it's an overt one on television or the neighbor's car in their driveway, we're told that our stuff will make us more happy. So when we have an experience that goes outside of that, 
don't know what to do. How do I process this? What do I do with this? I'm amazed at how happy they are when they don't have this stuff. And how do we process that? What do I, what do, I do with it? We have this assumption. Rich people are happy. Poor people are sad. That's what our expectation is. So when we run into that, we don't know what to do with it. That assumption. Well, the brands have saturated us with this idea. And what they do is that they're attaching this meaning. They're attaching a meaning of happiness to their things. I'm supposed to associate meaning with their image. Because we're meaning machines. I stole this this quote from a, another pastor, McManus. Give him full writes to it. He, he calls humans meaning machines. We take meaning out of everything. You're walking down the street. Had this happen before. A number of times. Walking down the street, down the sidewalk. Remember one time in particular coming home from school. Walk under a tree. What happens? Bird poops on me. Immediately, I go to associating meaning with that. What? Why did that happen? Why did the bird poop on me? Like, did I do something today to be deserved to be pooped on? And I'm hoping that poop is not a bad word in any of the families for the kids here. If it is, I apologize. Uh, but we associate meaning with it, right? Immediately we're like, is this some sort of karma? Is this God's judgment for something I did today? Why did this bird poop on me? Well, in all reality, the bird probably pooped on you because you scared the bird out of the tree. And birds, it's what they do before they fly. They do that. And so it flew away, and it did that before it flew away. That's why the bird pooped on you. But we look immediately for meaning in it. Everything in our lives, we're meaning machines. We want to to derive meaning out of every experience. If you were driving in the last few days in the road and may have slid off of the road, you may have initially started to look for meaning. Why did this happen? There are other things I needed to do. I don't have, is this some sort of, of punishment for something? Why did this happen? Well, it happened because you're probably going too fast for the conditions of the road. That's the meaning. There isn't any sort of other deeper significance here other than that. But we're meaning machines. We look for meaning in everything. We're always asking why. We just finished a series before we moved when we are at Chippewa uh, in November, it was October maybe, two. Questions for God. We asked we, we posed questions from here. What is the proof for God's exis- existence? Why do prayers go unanswered? Why do bad things happen? We're, we're looking for meaning in each of those things. We want to derive some sort of meaning out of our experience. We're meaning machines. We want to make sense of the world that we live in. And I think it's a reflection of the nature of who we are and how we interact with the world. We are uncomfortable with our existence. We recognize that there's something, there's some sort of order to the world that we are not quite sure how it's going on. That's why we look for meaning. We look for meaning because we believe that X plus Y equals Z, but we don't always see X plus Y equals Z. We see things outside of our normal experience. We have things happen to us that we Like going on a mission trip and seeing happily poor people, we try to drive meaning out of that. Because when things don't fit inside the box, we have to get them inside the box. We're looking for meaning because 
we're fractured. Because we're broken people. Because we're people who don't understand everything around us. We're in search of meaning because of our brokenness. Because we're in this world that we don't entirely understand. We're looking for it. When Jesus, when he was walking the earth, when he was traveling around by foot everywhere, he had all sorts of people following him. People who were searching for meaning in their lives because these were people who were on the fringes of society. The people who were following Jesus were the outcasts of their time. These were sick people. And sick had a whole different connotation in Jesus' time because people associated a meaning with physical sickness in Jesus' time. If you were physically ill, God had cursed you because of something that you had done. So these people were outcasts from their community because of their illness. They were unclean. You couldn't associate with them. So they had associated meaning. So Jesus had these people following him around. Jesus had a whole bunch of people who were just looking for a meal following him around. A couple times Jesus fed masses of people. And so the people were like, hey, free food. I'm going to keep going because i got nowhere else to get food. I'm poor and I don't know where else to go. So they just follow Jesus around, waiting for him to make more bread out of nothing or little bits of bread. So people were just following Jesus around. They were these fringe people. And we just celebrated Jesus' birth. And we celebrate this, this amazing birth of the king of kings coming and being born in the filth of a stable. And the only people around to celebrate are shepherds, who again are the outcasts of their society. They're people who are on the fringe of the world that they live in. So we just, all of Jesus' life is surrounded with these people looking for meaning on the fringes, people who are searching. There seems to be a bit of an exclusivity to following Jesus. It was exclusively for people who were broken, fringe people. When Jesus calls his disciples, this is interesting, in the culture that Jesus lived with, for a rabbi, a teacher, to call disciples was a normal thing. And what would happen is a, a, a rabbi would have a, an entry process, an interview process. Young men would apply. They would go through their schooling process and they'd reach a point in their teens where it was time to either move and continue on this process of being trained as a religious person, as a religious scholar, so to speak, and become a rabbi yourself eventually. So they would apply to be an apprentice rabbi, essentially, a disciple. Or they would learn the trade of their family. So it was a crossroads that young people would, would enter into. And the process was always initiated by the young person coming to a rabbi and saying, I want to I study under you. I want to follow you. And so they would come. Jesus' disciples, if you read the story, he goes out to young people who are already learning a trade. He calls fishermen. He calls a tax collector. He calls a religious zealot. These are people who have already been passed over. Jesus' disciples are undrafted free agents. These are, these are guys that everyone else decided, you know what? No, not so much. I don't want that guy on my team. I've got some other ones. Jesus calls a whole group of people to follow him. He invests in them and then entrusts the entire future of his movement to these young men that nobody else wanted. That is profound. In the world where everyone's searching for meaning, because of their brokenness, Jesus says, I'm going to trust these people who nobody else thought were capable. So he does this. He 
he moves this. It's in our culture even. One of the things that I find amazing, and I think we need to, I don't know what we do with it, but I find it interesting, is the 12-step programs, AA and stuff like that. When you come to it, the first thing you do is admit that you have a problem that you don't have control over. This is what AA is. You come into an AA meeting, I'm Joe, and I'm alcoholic. In that, you're admitting that alcohol holds a power over you greater than what you can control, that your life is unmanageable, and that you need to reach outside of yourself for that. There's an amazing freedom in that, to be able to admit that for those people. And it does amazing things and frees a lot of people to be able to come in and admit that. And the secret is, within the church, ultimately we're doing the same thing. A Christian is a person who says, I am a sinner and I have no power over the sin in my life. I cannot control it. And I need God to free me from it. That is our first confession as believers, as we come and say, I'm a sinner and I have no power over my sin. But then it goes away. We have this branding that happens because there's a recognition that people are looking for meaning and people are looking for meaning because of their brokenness. In our, in our brokenness, we can, we can recognize and call out to God and acknowledge that. But there's a step that happens there. And so we've drawn this connection. Now, I want to pause for a moment here because we've kind of hit a place where I want to hold that idea. We've talked about branding. We had the kids up here. Branding, looking for meaning because of brokenness. Branding, branding meaning brokenness. So we've come on this trail. I want to hit pause on that for a second and we'll come back to it. We just moved from our where we've been worshiping for a couple years at Chippewa, just around the corner basically and came to this. This is our fourth Sunday in this space, which is exciting. Now with this, there is generally a sense that being in this space, Shoreview in this area is, is where we're going to put down roots as a church community. That th- Chippewa had a two-year limit to how long we could be there. We knew that going in. There's no limit here. We don't know that this will be the space we'll be meeting in for 20 years or whatever. But there's generally a sense among a number of us that this is the community with which this church will put down roots. So with that in mind, there's, we should understand the neighborhood we live in. And As a covenant church plant, we have access to some research stuff about the area we live in. So I did a little, a little poking around to discover a little bit about the neighborhood that we live in. Where is it that, uh, that we find ourselves as a church? So ge- geographically, there's this, well, there's this program online that the covenant has for us that we can go in and ask, we can put in geographic parameters to it, and then it will tell us all sorts. It's like they're reading your mail, and kind of they literally are, Uh, all sorts of demographic information about the area that you plug in. So I took this as as the center of the the circle and had a four-mile 
radius from this place. So to give you an idea, if you go off to the west here, about four miles straight west from here is about Long Lake Road in New Brighton. Irondale High School, maybe Silver Lake Road on the out stretches of it. But that's generally four miles away. To the north, four miles that way to the north is somewhere around County Road J, uh, Lino Lakes, that vicinity. Four miles in that direction is, in e- east is that direction, by the way, uh, or that, somewhere this part of the room over there. Uh, three miles in that direction is 35E, Interstate 35E. And then uh, four miles that way, south, is County Road C in Roseville. So that's four miles from this place. Uh, that would be what we consider in our neighborhood. Now, if you're from outside of the four-mile radius, you are more than welcome here. We love you. We're glad that you are willing to travel that far to be a part of this. Even if you came from Wisconsin, we're thrilled that you're here. We ask you to leave the green at the door, but outside of... No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, we love you anyway. All right? <laughs> that didn't sound right at all. <laughs> we love you. Period. All right. Uh, so that's, that's our neighborhood. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about what this demographic research tells us about the neighborhood that we're in. There are about 80,000 people who live in that sphere. 80,000 people. That's, that's a lot of people. Of those 80,000 people, I thought this was pretty profound. 74% of that 80,000 people are adults between the ages of 35 and 54 and their children who are between the ages of 5 and 24. So families. Not young families, not families with with young children, but families with school-age and college-age children. 74% of the people who live, 74% of the 80,000 people who live within that, uh, that circle are families with children who are school-age. Now, if you're out, again, all the disclaimers, if you do not fit any of these things, we are not doing a self-selector way out thing today. This is just for the sake of, of learning about the neighborhood that we live in. So, if that's not you, that's not us, by the way. Um, our, our kids are school age, but we slid right under the boundary. Uh, uh, so, if this isn't you, don't fret thou not. It's okay. Uh, we love you, period. Uh, so, that's the population. Education, this one I find amazing, too. of the eligible adults, you have to be over 24 to account for this, 29% of adults in that area have a bachelor's degree. 29% of those adults have a bachelor's degree. That's 1.4 times the state average. Then 20% of those adults have a graduate or higher degree. So 20, 29% have just a bachelor's degree. 20% have a postgraduate degree. So we're talking about almost 50% of the eligible adults within that sphere have some sort of four-year degree or greater. That, uh, By the way, the 20% having a graduate degree, that's twice the state average. 
In the state of Minnesota, about 10% of the, the adults in the state have a postgraduate degree. So this is a high density of highly educated people. Uh, income. The average household income in this area, household, so the whole house, yeah, uh, $101,000 is what that area is. If you go to globalrichlist.com, you can plug in to see where you fit in the world. Globalrichlist.com places a person, uh, a family with $101,000 in the top 0.65% of the wealthiest people in the world. So uh, with that, that places the people in this area among the 37 million richest people in the world. That makes sense. Of the 6 billion people in the world, the families in this area would be among the 37 million richest people in the world. Make sense? All right. So that's, that's with, the, uh, with that. Um, 54% of the families in this area earn more than $75,000 annually. So that is a little bit about the demographic. I love this part. This is the narrative. They give a little narrative, a kind of a story of what the family, of what the people in this area look like, and they have a categorization for them, and they call them enterprising couples. Doesn't that sound quaint? Enterprising couples. A collection of married couples with children and childless duos. (laughs) Sounds like a band name. Uh, Living in upper middle class commuter communities. Now, listen to this and just pick out the parts that may connect with you, because not all of it will, and you're like, oh, that's not me, because this isn't true. Well... It's, it's a generalization, and of course, it, it all doesn't work. But enterprising couples represent a collection of married couples with children and childless duos living in upper-middle-class upper commuter communities. Most adults are baby boomer, boomers who are white, college-educated, and well-paid, earning household incomes more than twice the national median, living in new suburban subdivisions in metropolitan sprawl. Enterprising couples' households typically have long commutes, to white-collar jobs in healthcare, education, and retail. But despite the significant number of childless households, only a small percentage live in apartments. The vast majority, the vast majority pays steep prices for detached homes built after 1990, and they fill their driveways with mid-sized luxury cars, typically imports. Lifestyles. The well-off boomers who compromise enterprising couples pursue an always-on-the-go lifestyle. It's hyphenated, too, by the way. Always on the go lifestyle. They describe themselves as workaholics and multitaskers who enjoy traveling, keeping fit, and supporting the arts. They have high rates for, uh, they have high rates for going to concerts, museums, and antique shows and dance performances. They try to make time each day for working out, preferably on cardio machines and stationary bikes. <laughs> like downstairs. Uh, Conservative when it comes to money matters, they are savers who maintain high balances in their IRAs, 401ks, and 529 college saving plans, which you need the college degree to understand. Uh, When shopping, they frequently use coupons and await sales before hitting retailers like Target, which the kids all knew Target, by the way, just pointing that out, Uh, Kohl's and Bed Bath & Beyond. Are they still open or are they closed? They're open? Okay. See? Proving it right. Uh, But these financially secure consumers uh, 
are still make a strong market for electronic devices, board games, and athletic equipment. Okay, if you're like me, you might be fighting the boxing right now. Like, I hate it when people try to put me in a box of saying, oh, this is, you fit in this nice little category. Like, I'm sure a lot of us are at that place where, like, don't put me in your little box. I don't fit. Absolutely. And again, all the disclaimers. This is just to generally find out about the neighborhood that we live in. This is not an indictment of any one of you or us or our neighbors. This is just to say this is, this is the area we, fi- we find ourselves in. This is our neighborhood. This is our neighbors. And to an extent, it's us as well. Here's my understanding. As a church, which is a community of people who are following Jesus, as a church, we are meant to be a transformational movement bringing the kingdom of heaven into our sphere of influence, both collectively as a group and individually wherever we find ourselves. So as a church, we're called to bring the kingdom of heaven to our sphere of influence. Four miles sounds like a fairly reasonable sphere of influence, right? So this is what we're called to do, is advance the kingdom of heaven within this area. If this is where our church is putting down roots, we're called to advance the kingdom of heaven here. This sphere, and why this matters, how this matters, is that this sphere can be a a hard nut to crack when it comes to the gospel. Because when we look at Jesus, we looked at his ministry, I just highlighted briefly the people who are magnetically drawn to them, to him, those people wouldn't fit demographically the characteristics of the community we live in. Let me say that again. The people who were magnetically drawn to Jesus when he walked the earth wouldn't fit the demographics of the people of the community we live in. Because the people of this community may be sick. They may have some of the same struggles that that the people that were drawn to Jesus had. But generally, this community finds itself financially fairly stable given the economy and all that stuff. But generally... This community finds itself in a stable place where there's security, where there's education, where there's capacity to right oneself. There isn't a lot of acknowledgement within a community like this that I'm a broken person and there are things at work in my life that I don't have control over. Now, there isn't a lot of public acknowledgement of that, but... We all know ourselves, and many of us know our neighbors and know the truth that within our lives, within the lives of our neighbors, there are things that are broken and they don't have control over. But within this four-mile sphere, it is a weakness to admit that. And that's one of the problems we have within a church, is being able to be open with each other and this is the church in general, I'm not necessarily a, a spot on indictment of us as a community, but within the church in general, there has become a disconnect. We come to church on Sunday, we dress in our nice clothes, we put our kids in their cute sweaters, mine are right here, pointing, in, pointing, yeah, all right, in our cute sweaters, they smile, we shove a couple cookies in their mouths so they don't say anything embarrassing, and we go about it. There isn't there is a difficulty in having those relationships where we have the freedom to admit what that brokenness is 
what that addiction is. What is that pain? We talked about the branding that led to the search for meaning that was a result of the brokenness. We're familiar with the branding. We're familiar with the search for meaning. But there's a lot of unfamiliarity when it comes to ourselves and each other about what that brokenness is and how healing comes to the midst of that. And this matters for us as a community. Because if our call, if our purpose is to advance the kingdom of heaven, to transform, to redeem this world until Jesus redeems it all, if our purpose is to be on that front, to be about the redemption of the world, what an incredible place to be located. This was very helpful for us as a compassion justice team when we looked at this. Because we were kind of struggling about what do we do? How do we leverage compassion and justice? When we started realizing, wait, look around. Look at the capacity of the community that we live in. When you talk about an education level like we have, about the, the people with the professional skills and knowledge that they have, the financial and human resources that are within this four-mile radius are incredibly profound. And granted, God has the power to redeem apart from people and money. That is perfectly true. But God also uses people and money in the redemptive process, especially when it's people whose, heart, people whose hearts are turned toward him using the resources that he has trusted them with. What an incredible place we find ourselves in. If we can leverage our relationships to crack the nut that we live in, the capacity for transformation that is within this community is, I mean, it's amazing. Let me, I'm, I'm up on time, so let me go uh, quickly to Ephesians. Actually, I'm going to skip straight to John. Uh, Ephesians 2 is a great verse, is a great chapter to read, so do that. Uh, but I'm going to go straight to, uh, to John. As, as we do this, I think the question for us, let me read this and then I'll pose the question. John chapter 13, we're going to start with verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, now is, the Son of, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. I think a great question for us as a church to continually bring up and continue to wrestle with is, who would miss us if we were gone and why? If next week we collectively heard that God wanted us all to pick up and move to Mongolia, that if you felt like ECC was your church home, that we all just had this bizarre revelation, individually and collectively, that we need to, to move it all to Mongolia, who in this community would mourn that loss and why? Individually, why would our neighbors mourn that we were leaving the neighborhood? And collectively, 
why would this community mourn the loss of this church? If this church ceased to be here, who would mourn its departure and why? That is a great question for us to continue to ask ourselves and evaluate. Because it it shows why we're here and what we're accomplishing. So when Jesus talks about how his disciples are to brand themselves, how they're to be known, what is the experience that people should have when they encounter you, he tells them that it's love. And it's cliche, and it's a little bit kitschy, and it can sound a little bit trite. But that's the truth of what the gospel tells us, and we've heard it, but it's there. I asked Tony uh, to help me with the pronunciation of it. But the Greek word that is translated there into love is agapeo. Nice. Agapeo. Which is to acquiesce with satisfaction. You need the college education for that one. To acquiesce with satisfaction. Or to cherish with reverence. This is a command that Jesus gives to us for each other and the world around us. To acquiesce to each other out of reverence is what we're called to do. Because people will recognize that as a mark that Jesus is with us and among us. When we acquiesce to each other out of reverence. When we love each other and when we love the people around us, that's the recognition that people will have that Jesus is among us. I want to invite the worship team up and we're going to finish with a a song here. Love is our good news. Love is our gospel. Love is the nutcracker for the community that we live in. The well-educated, the relatively wealthy, stable, brand name community that we live in. Love is the transformational power for this community. As simple as that is and as complex as that is, that's what Jesus calls us to be and do. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to to be together and discuss this, to learn about the community that we find ourselves in and discern more of what your call is for us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now through this time of worship. Lord, let us reflect on this. Lord, we also pray for uh, the offering that we're going to receive during this time, that you would use that for your purposes to advance your kingdom and transform the world that we live in. In your name, amen. I'll invite you.